0: Welcome to the Michael Welch Podcast. Today we're going to hit a little bit of college basketball. Of course, it's very, very fluid right now. The college transfer portal is throwing a lot of wrenches and how to assess rosters and how things are coming together and projections a little bit. But I'd like to review the final four from this past season and how they look projecting into next season, the 22-23 season. As well as where we are standing in the NBA playoffs at this point in time. Here we go All my blessings, 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 all my blessings. blessings, blessings. I need my blessings every penny. Daily counting, every single one, I'm seeing plenty. So we have a long road before college basketball starts up again, obviously being closer to the postseason of last year than the preseason of this upcoming season. But I'd like to take a look at the Final Four teams and the storylines that they have moving forward into this next season. So let's start with the Kansas Jayhawks, the defending national champs. They will lose Ochai Agbaji. Big 12 Player of the Year, whose name I did not say correctly. Uh, David McCormick, Remy Martin, the former Arizona State Sun Devil, Jalen Coleman lands and Mitch Lightfoot. So they'll lose a large chunk of their cast, uh, including the Big 12 Player of the Year. And they'll see a couple guys in the NBA, a couple guys do the graduation. It is possible that Agbaji and McCormick return to the Jayhawks accepting that COVID year extra eligibility, but that is not likely. Junior Christian Braun is also testing the NBA and sophomore Jalen Wilson. He'll presumably be back, but he did test the NBA waters once already, so we'll see if he continues to stay a Jayhawk. Now they did pull in the number four recruiting class per 24-7 sports. With four commitments, including two five-stars, one of them being Grady Dick, a 6'7", lanky local Wichita kid, and Gatorade National Player of the Year. He also grabbed MJ Rice, 6'5", guard, who's finishing up high school ball in Cali. He's original from Durham, North Carolina. So both figure to be key pieces of the team moving forward. Zubi Ojafor is a 6'8", four-star from Garland, Texas, and Ernest Udai Jr. is a 6'10 center from Orlando, Uh, so those guys will continue to add size to the Jayhawks as well. So it seems like Kansas is positioned to see a normal post-championship season for a Blue Blood program. A half dozen top contributors are out due to graduation and the NBA and the transfer portal as well. That will be the third factor moving forward, although not in this particular case. The key contributors that are left will presumably develop in a linear fashion, move into expanded roles, and see their numbers increase and their actual impact on the floor continue to push that team forward as their minutes increase, as either starters or in an expanded capacity off of the bench or in the rotation. And they will see an infusion of talent from top prospects and recruits with the potential to land big names out of the transfer portal as well, and a competent coaching staff to make it all mesh together. So what's the wrinkle here? Well, let's not forget that Kansas could be banned from the 22-23 postseason and could face other punishments from violations due to the 2017 FBI wiretapping scandal that made national headlines and saw double-digit people, 10-plus people arrested, revolving around payments to various individuals, directing and guiding recruits to top programs. In 2020, it was decided an independent five-person panel would be hearing the case and deciding punishment with no appeal process. We're not entirely certain how NIL will affect the ruling or potential punishment. Jeff Dean of NPR most recently revisited the case earlier this month and has a very detailed piece available on their website, which goes into A lot of detail, of course, back in 2017 as the arrests were being made. This was a very hot topic. These violations are separate from the LSU basketball violations. I thought they were originally the same or tied in, but I can't really keep a track anymore. Uh, The Tigers fired Will Wade after they lost to Iowa State in the first round this past postseason. Wade was accused of luring a recruit to the school through cash payments uh, and job offerings uh, in a number of related incidences. there were a handful of other allegations as well. Last I checked one player was remaining on lsu's roster and everyone else was in the transfer portal. so one guy uh, was still on the roster there. Uh, Matt McGann of Murray State took that job. Of course the Murray State Racers has great success under him, including this past year where they were making it to the second round of the NCAA tournament and he will have a doozy of a job on his hands. We did see Iowa State rebuild from a 2-21 season in 2020 after a roster rebuild through the transfer portal, and the Minnesota Gophers did the same with one returning player as well. After Patino was fired, their roster under Ben Johnson in his first season included Elijah Stevens from Lafayette and Sean Sutherland from New Hampshire. They certainly crushed it last season, finishing 14 and 15, all things considered, but didn't get the higher profile transfers that Iowa State did, and neither team faced postseason sanctions like LSU could. That could really impact the guys that McMahon pulls in. If Kansas is in a similar boat, who knows when a verdict slash punishment will actually be doled out. But it could be soon, and it could impact the decision of players to stay committed to the university. And it could have an impact during the season with guys potentially sitting out or losing mental focus if the season starts to go a little south. If they aren't winning, if they aren't getting the playing time that they would like, especially if there are certain players looking towards the NBA or even the transfer portal in the middle of the season. We're starting to see that already in both basketball and football. Kansas isn't a lock to win the Big 12 anymore. Scott Drew's coaching job with Baylor as the number one seed in the NCAA tournament this past season was nothing short of miraculous considering some of the injuries that he suffered. They were co-Big 10 regular season champions along with Kansas. Chris Beard will be entering year two at Texas with an actual recruiting class ranked in the top 15, including two five-stars, and not just with the squad assembled from the transfer portal and kind of put together on the fly. Mark Adams is rolling into year two post-Chris Beard at Texas Tech with a top 25 recruiting class. And TCU and Oklahoma State will be involved and don't have a strong chance to actually win or be at the very top or win the win the conference. But they could help decide who doesn't win. So we'll see what the focus is going to be with this dark cloud kind of overhanging. Obviously, it's been there for a few years, but it looks like this could be culminating very soon, including this offseason. It certainly helps to have the Gatorade National Player of the Year in your backyard. So we'll see if something were to come down, whether he'd go play a year somewhere else or stay the course in his local area. Moving to Villanova, Jay Wright's retirement was shocking this past off season, just in the past couple of weeks. At the ripe age of sixty, perhaps it shouldn't have been, but he stated that he needed a break, and still left the door open for potentially returning to basketball in some capacity in the future. Certainly the NBA is still on the table, but burnout was certainly the reason. His leaving means the only current coaches with multiple championships are Rick Patino, currently at Ionia, and Bill Self, who of course just won his second. Assistant Kyle Neptune, at 37 years old, steps in the head spot after nine seasons on the bench as an assistant. And last season, his first year as a head coach at Fordham, he returns to the fold here at Villanova. He was 16-16. and 16 last season at Fordham. Colin Gillespie will be gone from the roster, but a top 15 recruiting class. Only three commitments will be coming in, including five-star Cam Whitmore. But the question will be, can a hometown... But the question will be, can a homegrown young guy step up to the bench and fill Jay Wright's place enough to stay ahead of the competition on his heels in a competitive Big East? Part of Wright's winning was attributed to his coaching. It is a league with Xavier, Providence, a Creighton team led by a handful of super freshmen, now sophomores. So will the Wildcats fall back to the middle of the pack, or they continue to stay one step ahead? Villanova has 30-plus win seasons in five of the past eight years, and has AP Top 10 finishes in seven of the last nine. Duke's year really ended with a thud, losing at home in Coach K's final game to the North Carolina Tar Heels in devastating fashion, and then turning around and doing it again in the Final Four after a stellar run through the tournament. But the program is in good hands now with John Shire taking the wheel just a decade after he was playing basketball under Mike Krzyzewski at only 34 years old. He is the new head coach of the Duke Blue Devils. The roster turns over a handful of guys headed straight to the NBA, but it has the number one recruiting class and is bringing in four five-star players and four guys listed 6'8 or taller. If the ACC struggles again from a performance standpoint, Duke should have the talent to be at the very top again and just might have the players to engulf the competition with its giant oak tree-like lineup that Shire will be able to field. So this will be an exciting team to watch that I think will perform very well on the court with all its young talent. On the other side, the North Carolina Tar Heels, and it will be very different to see two completely different head coaches on the sidelines for these rivalry games although we have been preparing for it for a while. Of course, Roy Williams suddenly retiring prior to the 2021 season. But Hubert Davis survived a bumpy first half to his debut season as head coach, and the Tar Heels made a run to the national championship game. And to everyone's surprise, quite a few guys are coming back. Four starters are back. Caleb Love, R.J. Davis, Leaky Black, Armando Bacot, the ACC Player of the Year, who averaged 16 points and 13 boards. He was also number two on the ACC tournament list for most rebounds in the tournament. Played second on that list. The only player that won't be coming back is Brady Manick, having played something like 20 years at Oklahoma, then transferring over to the Tar Heels, and playing out his extra COVID year. Hard to keep track with all the rules now. He was originally a freshman Oklahoma back in 2017, though, with Trey Young, so that's how long that he has been around. But four guys back for the North Carolina Tar Heels on a team that made a run to the national championship and had an opportunity at the end to extend the game. The Tar Heels will also be welcoming in three commits, All four stars uh, that effectively gave them a top 15 recruiting class as well. So I'd say stock up on North Carolina and Duke, or net neutral for Duke, really, who's always in the hunt. Those two teams look to be battling out for the ACC heading into next season at this point. I'd say stock down a little bit on Villanova, who you're hoping can maintain its position there in the Big East if you are a wildcat. And stock down on Kansas, whose stranglehold on the Big 12 is continuing to be disrupted a little bit by Texas and Baylor, presumably heading into next season. And with the uh, looming sanction, it certainly looks like something is going to come down to impact that program. I'd like to touch briefly on Michigan basketball and Michigan natives playing basketball and players playing for Michigan schools here. There's a couple guys that I'd like to uh, talk about here for a few minutes. First of all, Hunter Dickinson is back at the University of Michigan. Uh, my brother is a Michigan alumni, and he's very thrilled to hear this. He was a leading scorer for the team last season, only bright spot for portions of time as the team really struggled to stay above uh, 500 and make it into the NCAA tournament before going on their sweet 16 run. He's not exactly the body type right now. That looks to have a lot of success and playing time in the NBA. However, his partner in crime there that uh, just entered his name into the ring, Musa uh, Moussa Diabate, the Frenchman, uh, Looked solid in his year at uh, Michigan, his one-year freshman season. And uh, my brother's hopeful that he will be back as their our Michigan uh, folks as well. Uh, but I do not see him returning to Michigan. I think that he has the physical characteristics that the NBA tends to look for now. He's only 20 years old, 6'11", about 7'1", wingspan, weighs in at a little over 200 pounds. He's a little, little bit lanky but he's shown the ability to attack the offensive boards. He can handle a little bit, He can anticipate and block shots. So his shooting needs a little bit of work going to the next level. He may not start as a shooter. He won't start as a shooter uh, from that perspective, but probably more as a defensive player. Uh, but I think he has, certainly has intriguing size. And he started playing basketball for the French international team, then moved to the ING Academy where they develop uh, high school athletes. So he's got a little bit of a background in trying to build his skill set. And I think his physical abilities are intriguing. So certainly room for growth there. If he does return to Michigan, it would be an excellent um, guy to have back. But I think he's gone and he'll be a great raw project for someone to kind of start on the defensive end and build his shooting in as he continues to grow. Imani Bates, the Ypsilanti, Michigan native, is leaving Memphis. He originally committed to the Tigers over Oregon, over Michigan State, who he originally gave a verbal commitment to, and he's decided to leave that school. He originally wanted to go and play a little bit more point guard under Penny, uh, kind of get coached up uh, under that position. And that did not work out so well. Memphis Tigers were one of the leaders in the country in turnovers. They certainly struggled uh, in Amani's decision-making and his uh, lack of ability to defend, we'll say. Uh, He missed some time towards the end of the year due to injury, came back in the NCAA tournament, hit some big shots shooting numbers aren't excellent but i am very very excited to see him at another school uh he was seen recently with Juan Howard so whether he ends up back in his home state at michigan or at michigan state or elsewhere i think his ability to play off the ball and be a scorer possibly recommit to the defensive end but to certainly see him on another staff there was some turmoil there at memphis this season but i think to see him somewhere else and maybe humbled a little bit uh, and recommitted and refocused. I'm excited to see Amani Bates, who was the top prospect coming out of high school for a while, then shifted from number one, number two, moved around a little bit, depending on where you looked. He's still only 19 years old, or he might still be 18 years old at this point. Um, He can't yet go to the NBA. He could hop into the G League, Ignite, if he so chose. He's not quite NBA, Eligible yet, uh, but I'm very excited to see where Amani Bates goes and very excited for him to prove everyone wrong who says he's not a team player or a contributor or can't play defense and all the negative criticism he's received after last year's performance. You know, He's on the cover of Sports Illustrated when he was a junior in high school, billed as the next LeBron James, which is, of course, way overblown. And uh, just very excited to see what he's going to do moving forward, what school he selects, and how he fits into that system. So just very excited for the next stage in his young career. And finally, I would like to touch on Antone Davis, the Birmingham, Alabama native who went to play for his father at Detroit Mercy with the Titans. I've been keeping an eye on him. Since his freshman year, the 2018-19 season, he has played all four years at Detroit Mercy, but has one year left with the COVID eligibility deal, and he has entered the transfer portal and will be going to a major program to play his final year of college basketball. Now, he's 24th all-time in career points scored in college basketball. He averages 24.6 24.6 points for his career, on 36% shooting from three. He's averaged 24 three-point attempts per game for his career, and he's never shot fewer than than 10 attempts uh, throughout his four-year career. And he's played, you know, minus uh, a few years in the shortened 2020-21 20, 20, season, where he played 22 games. He's played full seasons all the way through, pretty much. Now, his shooting percentage from the floor is an excellent 40% from the floor, but the past couple of years, he's been playing on the ball as the point guard and the main distributor and shooter uh, for this Titan squad, which has not been to his benefit really. So to put him on another team and have him play off ball would be excellent. He'd be one of the top shooters in the country uh, he's limited his schools down to five currently uh, so maryland kansas state georgetown birmingham young or he could go back to play uh, for the titans so not a top school he's not going to be on any of your prime time tv slots but Antone davis one of the top shooters in the country for the past four years one of the top playmakers from a very small school uh, in the Mitten here, and he'll be heading. It'd be nice to see him in the Big Ten with Maryland as that team with new coaching staff hopefully makes a resurgence, and maybe Birmingham Young would make a move too. Uh, but hopefully, he'll get a little more attention as well as he's been one of the best, most underrated players in college basketball for the past several seasons. touching base on the NBA playoffs. As I'm recording this tonight, the Milwaukee Bucks are getting ready to take down the Chicago Bulls tonight, and the Golden State Warriors are getting ready to eliminate the Denver Nuggets. So we could have half of the second round set by the time that you are listening to this podcast. In the East, the Nets are gone already. The Boston Celtics completed the sweep Brooklyn is the only team to have not won a playoff game this postseason, and they're joining the Lakers and the Clippers as three of the top five teams with the best odds to win the championship coming into the season, and all three are currently sitting at home. So in the East, the number one seeded Miami Heat have just finished off the Atlanta Hawks in a 4-1 to Gentleman Sweep. Trey Young finished with more turnovers than made field goals, as he was the focal point of that defense in shutting down uh, what the Hawks were able to do offensively. To no one's surprise, they struggled mightily when he was not the focal point of the offense. Now, Miami is in a bit of a weird position moving forward here in the game-clinching Game 5. Uh, both Jimmy Butler and Kyle Lowry were actually out. Lowry due to a hamstring, Jimmy Butler due to inflammation in his knee. Presumably, they'll be okay moving forward to some extent. Uh, Victor Olodipo, who has been out, uh, did play for... Uh, an extended amount of time, but there's rumor that he had not got into the series earlier because he had conflict with Jimmy Butler, uh, which is not uncommon, of course, for that uh, uh, to, which is not uncommon, of course, for Jimmy Butler to have conflict with somebody. But for Victor to come back and play very confidently in game five and to drop 23 points, on 8 of 16, shooting in 36 minutes, played, including 3 of 6 from 3, 8 of 16 from the field altogether, and to play very confidently, and to help the team clinch the uh, series in a 97-94 win, reflects very positively moving forward. Now Jimmy Butler on the bench looking on with Lowry, uh, so we'll see if any drama unfolds there or if those injuries catch up to Miami. It's entirely possible that they don't quite catch up yet, as they'll be playing the winner of Toronto and the 76ers, of course. The 76ers had a 3-0 series lead, and they still hold a lead, but it's 3-2 now. Of course, Joel Embiid has a torn ligament in his thumb that he's waiting until the offseason to repair. But Toronto grabbed Game 4, 110-102. to and a much improved performance for the Raptors. and they absolutely embarrassed the 76ers, 103 to 88 at Wells Fargo Center. And game six shifts back Thursday night to Toronto uh, with no uh, thiable, of course, because he's not fully vaccinated against COVID. So he will not be allowed into Canada. And there's just a lot of talk now. Can Embiid hold up? He's, of course, stating that the pain in his thumb is terrible and there's no real way to help relax that. Uh, Maxi has kind of fallen off the past couple of games. Doc Rivers is now being asked questions by the press again about all his blown leads and closing out games. And if this goes to Seven, his horrible record in closing out series and how that's on the table... Uh, Harden played a horrible game uh, in game five, so this is going to be a real gut check for the Sixers, even though they have to win one game in the final four to close out this series. But Toronto, Thursday night. I'm not sure the Raptors don't uh, don't take out the 76ers and we go to 7 back at Wells Fargo Center. That would be a hell of a story and all the pressure would be on Philadelphia. But presumably we get a Heat 76ers round 2 matchup with some banged up bodies all the way around. And in the bottom of the East, we will have the Boston Celtics, of course, who swept out the Brooklyn Nets. Thanks to a dominant defensive performance and the Milwaukee Bucks, should they take care of business tonight against the Chicago Bulls? Chicago did grab one game against Milwaukee, but presumably this will be a four to one series. Caruso has been out with a concussion. His defense has been missed and Milwaukee's kind of slept through the series. Chris Middleton has been greatly missed the past game, uh, Giannis macumbo Bobby Portis, and Brooke Lopez has provided a lot of size in the lineups that they've run out together with no Milton in the lineup to provide a little bit something different there. And that was quite successful for the Bucs in Game 4 to pull it out to a 3-1 to series lead and put the Bulls on the brink of elimination. Celtics-Nets is obviously... The big hitting series when the slate first came out, man, that did not go the way that anyone thought it would. Game three saw Kevin Durant only take 11 field goal attempts, and he only hit six of them, finished with 16 points. Bruce Brown again after a game two performance that went very well, uh, where he was able to, well, find himself wide open several times due to the pressure on Kevin Durant, hit 26 points in game three. Blake Griffin came in for a few minutes as well as Steve Nash tried to make a few adjustments. He had a couple big threes, but he looked completely exhausted as he hasn't played any games in a month or two. And if he'd had to take any physical contact on either side, he probably would have been right out of the game. So he just could not do much of anything but stand there and shoot three-pointers. But 26 points for Bruce Brown in game two. Andre Drummond played 15 minutes. About eight minutes for Blake Griffin. Nick Clockston was one of the more productive big men rolling to the rim with 13 points. And Jason Tatum really came alive, hitting 13 of his 29 field goal attempts for 39 points. Jalen Brown had 23. Marcus Smart was able to score 14 points, although he had 10 three-point attempts, which is way too many, as Celtics fans know. And the Celtics were able to pull off the stunning win at the end against the Brooklyn Nets. They had to really hold on for it in a 109-103 uh, survival in a game that, that went down to the end as the series had. But Brooklyn was was in all of these games up until the end. But the 3-0 series lead, stunning, was stunning. So when Game 4 rolled around, we saw more Blake Griffin at times. We saw Kevin Durant taking a whole lot of shots trying to survive. We saw more Kyrie Irving who didn't hit a single three-pointer in Game 3. Ultimately, in Game 4, Jason Tatum, 29 points, 22 for Jalen Brown, 20 for Marcus Smart, and the Celtics hold Kevin Durant to 13 for 31 shooting for 39 points. Kyrie Irving is 6 for 13 for 20 points. Blake Griffin plays an extended 17 minutes and scores zero points. And Andre Drummond, who probably wasn't always a fit for this kind of matchup, only played three minutes as Cloxton got more time, of course, Blake Griffin. And the Celtics complete the sweep, but winning the games by a combined 18 points, including a seven-point game two win. And Brooklyn was in all of these games but couldn't pull a single one of them out. It's quite disappointing that the series didn't go longer and that we had, I'm not going to say a real challenge from the Brooklyn Nets as these were all competitive games, but a real competitive series. Uh, But perhaps Ben Simmons would have made a difference. That's a whole nother story. All the talk about him throughout the entire season only to never play a game. Uh, The discussion about him returning for Game 4, now that we're post-Game 4 and post season for the Nets supposedly uh the coaching staff was fully expecting him to hop in and play game 4 but there was a mental block from his side and he wasn't able to overcome and get back onto the court so I can't speak exactly to that but that's are those are the reports that are circulating at this time and he sure stuck out uh in game 3 when we have all black uniforms on the Nets players and he's sitting dead center of the bench and long orange pants and a purple suit jacket and sunglasses looking like the clown show that he's been all season. Nothing but a distraction to that team. Unfortunately, I hope he's able to get his mind right and settled if that truly is what is going on there. But man, what a detriment to everyone around him and the entire organization and team and their mindset and expectations, and goals, and everything they have going on around them. I had more notes, but they're largely irrelevant. I thought the series would be continuing for another week. But Boston looks very impressive. Whether Jason Tatum uh, is active on the offensive end or not, or exerting a lot of uh, pressure on the defensive end. Uh, Robert Williams, a key piece, did come back in games three and four after his meniscus cleanup and he looks perfectly fine and he just added another element to these games. So I'm not sure that the Nets had any chance, uh, whether he played or not, or I should say if he didn't play, but him coming back, I think certainly closed the door on that. He was a contributor. Uh, the second he came off the bench, uh, partway through, I think the first quarter in game four and was just a presence in the paint and forced Brooklyn to kind of alter what they were doing in that area. So moving forward, they will, again, presumably be playing the Bucks. And with how they're struggling against Chicago, they're going to have a really difficult time against the Celtics. So this could be a shorter series as well with the way that, that Boston looks. So Celtics, man, they're looking like a finals team right now. Out in the West, we have the Phoenix Suns, who won a massive Game 5 to take a 3-2 series lead on the HC New Orleans Pelicans. Devin Booker's hamstring injury is going to extend at least another week or so as he continues to nurse that. The Pelicans had tied the series at two games apiece. It certainly had folks wondering how this series would play out. Chris Paul had a four-point game in Game 4 and a terrible shooting experience. Uh, D'Andra Aiden has been much more involved with the offense. But a massive Game 5 with Mikael Bridges on both sides of the ball, logging almost 47 minutes on the court, logging 31 points, 5 boards, 4 blocks, and shutting down both C.J. McCollum and Brandon Ingram. McCollum shooting 7 for 22, Brandon Ingram 7 for 19 from the floor, and allowing Chris Paul to f- open up just a little bit. He was 8 for 18 for 22 points, didn't hit a three-pointer. DeAndre Aiden again, more involved, 8 for 13 from the field for 19 points, and he's got to get a few buckets to get the squad going, but it's really going to come down to uh, Chris Paul probably to close this series out, but it's not quite over yet. We are in New Orleans, 7.30 Eastern Time, on Thursday, April 28th, to continue that series. But that could be a closeout for Phoenix, uh, as well as a closeout for the 76ers. And this next team, the Dallas Mavericks over the Utah Jazz in a shocking revelation. Luca's back. He's now 1-1 one one against the Utah Jazz and has them in an elimination game. Uh, in Utah, Game Four saw an alley oop from Gobert go down, and that pushed the Jazz to a 100 to 99 win over Dallas. That was Lucas' first game back and first appearance in the series. He did he did rack up 30 points and 10 rebounds in his return on 11 of 21 shooting. He did rack up 30 points on his return on 11 of 21 shooting. Brunson still added 23 points on 7-of-18 shooting as well. And Maxi Klebert fouled out in only 18 minutes, so that really hurt what they were able to offer offensively, as he's been a great contributor in this series. Donovan Mitchell, another terrible shooting night, 7-of-21 for 23 points. And Clarkson actually read, led uh, all scores that night, 9-of-16 for 25 points. Game 5 went a whole nother direction as the Mavericks completely dominated the Jazz, holding them to 77 points and a 102-77 to 77 point win. Donovan Mitchell again finished 4-15 for only 9 points. Clarkston was 9-15 for 20 points. And Gobert had 17, but this was a miserable performance all the way around by the Utah Jazz, somehow their worst of the series. The Dallas Mavericks saw 33 points, from Luka on 11 of 22 shooting, 24 from Brunson, 13 from Finney Smith, and the Mavericks now have two shots to take out the Utah Jazz in an embarrassing performance all the way around by the club. So we'll presumably have a Dallas Mavericks with a healthy-looking Luka against the Phoenix Suns with maybe a Devin Booker missing uh for the first game or so. So this could be an interesting matchup heading into the second round, but we got to make it through these uh, Eliminator games possibly first. The Warriors fumbled away uh, game four against Denver. It just seemed to be a bit of a loss of focus. They had turnovers at untimely times, 15 of them, but the Nuggets had 20, so that's not necessarily an excuse, but they did allow Denver to shoot 56% from the field, 48% from three. We did see rookie Bones Highland hit a couple key three-pointers. He finished with 15. Jokic had 37 points, shooting 14 of 21 from the field. Aaron Gordon had 21 points. 10 points for Cousins, who was really assertive when he was out there. And although they had fewer shot attempts than the Warriors, they simply knocked more of them down. But Steph Curry is penciled into the starting lineup for tonight and presumably will close out the series by the time you are listening to this podcast. The last series that needs discussion here uh, is one that's really held up, and that is the Memphis Grizzlies and the Minnesota Timberwolves. And we are at a 3-2 lead for the Memphis Grizzlies. Four was a victory for Minnesota. We saw Carl Anthony Towns come out very aggressive after a foul filled and energy empty games two and three. I think he only had four shot attempts in game three. So he came out hot in game four, contesting shots, aggressive on offense. He had 10 points in the first. He's very, very sloppy though. Six turnovers I think he ended up with on the game. He had four turnovers in the first quarter, including a horrible fourth quarter turnover that kept the Grizzlies in the game. But It was Desmond Bain's heroics and three-pointers that really kept the Grizzlies in the game uh, throughout its its entirety. He was 8-for-12 on the game. He finished with 34 points. We did have all kinds of foul trouble for the Memphis Grizzlies, Dylan Brooks had five, Tillman had five, Baines had five, John Morant had four, Jaron Jackson Jr. followed out with six, of course. Kyle Anderson had four, but horrible refereeing all the way around and how things were called, and it really impacted who was able to be out on the floor uh, at different points in this game. John Morant was 4-13 of from the field altogether, 11 points, 15 assists, eight rebounds, and a couple turnovers. Steven Adams only logged... Three minutes, Zaire Williams logged too many minutes, fourteen, uh, but the rotation was all all screwed up due to foul trouble. Anthony Edwards finished with twenty four points uh, but suffered more knee injuries like he did in in game two. He went down again here uh, and came back with a brace thirty three points for Carl Anthony Towns and eight of seventeen shooting S- seventeen points for Patrick Beverly was huge for the squad. D'Angelo Russell disappeared, only 3 of 12 for 10 points. and had 16 off the bench for Jordan and McLaughlin, who hit several big threes. He was 4 for 4 and really pushed this team uh, towards the end. Now, a number of several bad plays at the very end. The sequence really had the Timberwolves up to win the game with a few minutes left. Just a, a horrible play by Carl Anthony Towns stepping out of bounds on a ball that would have been the Timberwolves' possession, had he just let it roll out of bounds. They had a six-point lead with 228 left and should have had the ball and just really screwed that up. Uh, The Timberwolves continued to have two turnovers, a bad foul, a bad D'Angelo Russell three-point attempt, and two missed free throws in the last two and a half minutes when they could have gone up three possessions to give the Grizzlies. Uh, an opportunity to tie the game with under 10 seconds to go, but ultimately the uh, Timberwolves are able to seal the game at the free throw line and tie the series up. Now, game five was a 111, 109 victory on a John Morant layup to win the game. Edwards had 22 points on 8 of 20 shooting. Carl Anthony Towns, again, fairly aggressive again. 7 of 15, finish with 28 points to lead the Minnesota Timberwolves. We did have more time for McLaughlin in this game, earning more time after his performance in Game 4. He was only 1 for 3, though. Russell, another no-show. 4 for 10 from the field. Pat Bav, 3 for 6. Not a great showing for some of the uh, accessory pieces to this core. Dylan Brooks, a miserable 3 of 18, for 8 points for the Grizzlies. John Morant struggled again, 9 for 22, but finished with 30 points thanks to 17 free-throw attempts, making 11 of them. Also had 13 rebounds and 9 assists, so closer triple-double there. More time for Xavier Tillman. No time for Steven Adams. He did not play at all after logging 3 minutes in Game 4. Brandon Clark had 21 in this game. Zaire Williams saw his role diminished a little bit as well as we saw more Tyrus Jones. So uh, they did manage to pull it out, but we'll see how game six goes back in Minnesota as this series is just teetering back and forth. Jaron Jackson Jr. again falling out of game five after less than 18 minutes of play. So we'll see. There's lots of foul trouble, lots of effort and struggling shooting. John Morant's had troubles. Edwards has had troubles, Carl Anthony Towns has had troubles, Zaire Williams has had trouble. So each game is a little bit different story um and how we we get to the end result, but game 6 should be very exciting whether it's the Grizzlies closing it out or whether it's the Timberwolves forcing game 7. We of course have Cats dad and Timorant Jabberant dad on the sidelines. That's a good little rivalry between those two guys who sit together. We had Usher, who looks exactly like T. Morant, sitting sidelines for the Memphis Grizzlies game in Game 5. So that was uh, a fun little uh, storyline as well. But this is the most exciting series where we're not really sure who will win. Presumably Philadelphia wins their series. Milwaukee wins theirs. Dallas closes out Utah. The Phoenix closes out uh, the Pelicans, and the Golden State Warriors close out the Denver Nuggets. Um, Usually still expected to win here, but not impossible The Timberwolves win a couple games. So this is still uh, the most exciting series that we still have going on in round one. Don't forget, how could you? NFL Draft starts Thursday, the 28th. We'll see how many quarterbacks actually get drafted. None of them look particularly promising. We'll see how many teams dominate the first round, as several of them hold a lot of draft capital. And we'll see who the Jaguars, the Lions, some of those teams that really are struggling, Uh, the Eagles, some of those teams, we'll see who they uh, draft with uh, some of their top picks. So we'll review on the next Michael Welch podcast. All my, blessings, all, my blessings. All, my blessings, all 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 my blessings, I need my blessings every penny, daily counting every single one, I'm seeing plenty. Let